Welcome back to Book Therapy. This is Rob Cohen. It's been, I think, just about two months since we last spoke. And again, as usual, not for lack of trying, not for lack of inspiration to talk to you, but just uh, unfortunately lack of time and lack of access to my little microphone here. And uh, unfortunately, time seems to have a way of working against you sometimes. And that's kind of where we're at now. Although now it's, uh, it's Tuesday, December the 8th, and unusual for me to be recording on a weeknight. But it turned out that's when I could get to get time away to speak with you. Um, been a, a rough couple months. Um, as you know from uh, our last discussion, the Dodgers had been eliminated from the playoffs. And uh, since that time, it's been a little bit of a rough offseason off season so far this weekend, being particularly dis, uh, discouraging with the uh, signing by the Arizona Diamondbacks of Zach Granke. And uh, on top of that, it was just kind of a, a weird and sad weekend as it was. Um, we had obviously that signing and the disappointment of knowing that uh, one of the bright shining spots of the Dodgers pitching staff is going to be pitching against us. Um, but also the, the tragic death of the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots, Scott Weiland, on Friday morning kind of hit a little bit closer to home than uh, I would have expected, or it, it hit me in a way that I wouldn't have necessarily expected. Um, you know, you think about life and you think about uh, points in your life that you use as lines of demarcation, as in, I remember I did this before I had kids, or I did this before I got out of college, or before I became a lawyer, or whatever it was. And a lot of a lot of instances and events that I think about, I I try to determine whether they were before or after I got married because I've been married now um, 13 and a half years, almost 13 and a half years. I've been with my wife for, um, I think it's 17 years. So being as how I'm coming up to 40 years old, uh, not that I've been with my wife exactly half my age, but I've been with her certainly a, a good portion of my life. And so I utilize the time of before my wife and after my wife as de lines of demarcation. And Stone Temple Pilots was certainly um, experiences and events that took place before my wife was, was in my life. And so it's kind of a, a taking back to a childhood. You know, I, I first discovered or first heard of Stone Temple Pilots when a lot of you did back in um, 1992 when I was just 16 years old. And from the time I was 16 until probably 20 years old, they were my favorite band, would go and see them in concert. And so that was, in hearing that, that Scott Weiland had passed away, it was sort of like a reminder of what life was like, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was, um, you know, not bogged down by the, um, by the rules of life, by the responsibilities, by, by job responsibilities and financial responsibilities and family responsibilities. But it was really just about having fun and growing up. And this is a, unfortunately a sobering reminder that we do grow up. Now, granted, um, Wyland did not pass away because of old age, and he'd had drug problems for many, many years. Um, but when you start to see the people that you um, were, uh, you know, the, the people that you were close with when you were a kid or you were inspired by or you were entertained by, or you were a fan of, and you see them start to pass away for any reason, it's just a reminder of how fleeting life is and how we're not young anymore. And uh, so it was kind of a, a rough weekend from that respect. Um, and so, yes, Friday morning after I'd heard about 
his passing and I was on my way down to downtown to court. I was blasting the Stone Temple Pilots and remembering what it was like to see them at the Greek Theater in the summer of 1994 when they had the number one album in the country. And this was a band that was basically at its prime, at its at its top. Um, it was at the top of the recording industry in the music world. And um, to be there as a snapshot in time was something that um, I'll never forget. It was really like the first real rock concert that I remember going to where there was certainly nefarious folk about. Um, I remember a, a story we were sitting and we, my, my, my brother, my friend and I would smell what we ultimately determined was, was marijuana smoke. And the, uh, the guy who was sitting next to me had been smoking marijuana and blowing the smoke into his jacket, thinking that that was going to mask the smell. And when somebody, I think it was my friend, said, uh, you smell marijuana, and I pointed, it was the guy sitting next to me. I said, it was okay, though, because he'd offered us some, so this guy was cool. And, you know, when you're 18 years old and you grew up in Southern California, I, I, I'm not going to say I had a sheltered life, but I wasn't exposed to a lot of things that um, are, are negative um, influences. And so this was like my first experience with marijuana and illicit drugs and even being offered some um, so this is just kind of the snapshot of time of, of the summer of 1994 and me as a as an 18-year-old just infatuated with music and infatuated with Stone Temple Pilots and, and seeing a band that was really at the top of their game, at the top of their profession. Um, so anyways, that was, that was this weekend. It was kind of a sad stuff to have to think about um, as I'm getting closer to 40, I'll be 40 next month, and the idea of growing older and... Um, the fun experiences that we had and the memorable experiences we had as kids are fading away into the in the background and and compare that by the way with um having gone and seen um the band everclear a couple weeks ago and they're celebrating the 20th anniversary of their um, most significant debut album sparkle and fade and realizing that 20 years ago in 1995 um you know, that also was before my wife. And that was also a time when I was infatuated with music and, and just remembering having gone to those concerts before, um, before I met my wife. And again, I was in college, responsibilities were different. Um, and, and thinking about, you know, how that 20 years, how much I've changed in that 20 years, um, just uh, more, more sobering thoughts. And I find myself um, clamoring to have more and more of those events and experiences because I want the next 20 years to be as memorable and as fun as the past 20 years so that when I'm 60, I can look back and say that I, I truly did live my life to the fullest or at least that the, the 20 years um, had been one of memorable events, never missing out on opportunities to do something special and something exciting. And so a lot of people ask, you know, why it seems like we're we're never at home, why we're always out doing things is because I don't like to be at home. I like to be out having experiences and making memories and doing things that, that other people don't do or um, experiencing things that other people don't experience. And whether that's travel or that's music or that's entertainment or that's, um, you know, whatever it is, that's the way I like to spend my time because I don't want to at any point get to a situation where I feel as if I I didn't get to do something I wanted to do. I didn't get to, to, to see what I wanted to see, do what I wanted to do, read what I wanted to read, listen to what I wanted to listen to, or experience what I wanted to experience. So 
anyways, that's a little bit of my commentary. Um, but anyways, as, as I mentioned, I did do a lot of reading, and I'm not going to talk about all the books because, frankly, by this point, I don't really remember a lot of them. Um, but I'm going to hit on a couple of them, and um, I don't want to, I'm not going to give you all the details and gory details of the, of the tor- stories or plots or anything like that, but I'm going to tell you what my, my reactions were to the books and, and, you know, maybe guide you into staying clear of or rushing to the local bookstore to pick up uh, one of these books. Now, the first book that I'm going to talk about is called The Magician's Lie by Greer McAllister. And this, I, you know what, I should have known better. I really should have known better when when I picked this up at Target, and it was one of those Target club picks, and it's an autographed copy, which I don't know, it's a specially bound by the publisher. And um, as I mentioned before, you know what? If there's a a, a reading um, a reading guide at the end, that's just that's just a, a red flag right there. And this one uh, had a reading guide at the end. And by the time I finished this book, I really couldn't care less um, whether I was, what I was supposed to think about, what I should be thinking about, or even did I want to continue thinking about this book. It was just so disappointing. And I was expecting something along the lines of like The Night Circus or the movie The Prestige, um, where I I thought it was going to be about, well, about magic and that there was going to be some sort of a big reveal, like we were supposed to determine that this narrator was a, an unreliable narrator. The idea is that this woman is a an illusionist, and um, she does her show, and I don't even remember, it's like the show is in the middle of, middle of freaking nowhere. It's like in Oklahoma or, oh, Iowa. She's doing this, this show in Iowa, and she leaves the, the show after it's over. It's the turn of the century, 1905. And she goes to a restaurant or a bar or whatever it is. And she gets picked up by a cop because it turns out that somebody had been killed after the show was over. And this cop believes that she's the one who committed the crime. And so the, the book kind of goes back and forth between um, present day, i.e. 1905, and the cop interrogating this magician um, over the course of the evening. And the alternative part of the story is this woman telling her story of her, her growing up and becoming this magician. And it was so just nothing happened. Um, and it was all designed to slowly lead you down the path to believe that either she had or she had not, um, killed this person. But at the end of the book, she gets up, she leaves, and the, the, hero, I guess you could call it, the the police officer, is kind of left trying to determine whether everything that he's been told by her is true or whether it's all a lie. And I didn't get it. Um, when the book ended, I kind of put it down and went, so? So what, what was the big deal? Was she, Was she lying or was she not lying? And I didn't pick up enough clues during the book to lead me one way or the other to determine what the lie was. In fact, if I didn't know what the title of the book was, I never would have been expecting to see or hear or read about a lie. And so I don't know whether this was a function of the editor getting to the end of the book and saying, well, it's good, but nobody's going to know what it's about and nobody's going to know that you're supposed to distrust this narrator, so we're going to call it the magician's lie so that automatically your reader is put on notice that he's not or she's not necessarily supposed to trust what the narrator is telling you. 
I don't know. It just seemed like... It kind of felt like it was supposed to be more of a romance novel than any type of a a thriller or mystery. And yet, on the front cover, People Magazine has a review that says it's a smart, a richly imagined thriller. And yet, there's, there's nothing thrilling about it. There's no thrill to it. There's really even not even a mystery. And so I was just, I was just disappointed. Um, and I guess, you know, you've heard me mention it before, these, these uh, you know, do I go out on a limb and do I read books by people I don't, I don't, I haven't read before? And, and here's a perfect example of that. And, and a perfect example, by the way, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of my concern about, about whether I read books by authors or, or that I've read before is that I'm looking at the stack of books that I have to discuss with you, and four of them are by authors that I've read many times over. And at some point, you're going to get tired of hearing me talk about Michael Connolly or um, Jonathan Kellerman or whatever it is. And so I'm also trying to keep up with new authors or the potential to discover new authors. And I guess during that process, you got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. Um, and this one was just a, this one was a dog frog. It was really disappointing. Um, it, it wasn't even a book that I was excited to read or was compelling to the point where I would put it down at night and couldn't wait to read it again. I would pick it up and say, yeah, I guess I could read another chapter. I guess I can put read some more. Because... I was kind of hoping that there was going to be this big payoff at the end that would make the rest of the story and the rest of the book worthwhile. And in fact, a book that I, a, a different book that I read actually had that. And it's a book by authors that we've talked about before that I was kind of getting to the point where I didn't want to read anymore. And that's the um, Lincoln Child and Douglas Preston books with the character of Agent Pendergrast. Now, the newest book in the series is called Crimson Shore, and I read a little bit of, of um, advanced publication for the book that indicated, or at least people were promoting it as being like the best one in a long time and best in the series, all that kind of stuff. And so you'll recall that we discussed, I don't know, six, eight months ago, the previous book in the series called, um, called Blue Labyrinth and how I was so incredibly disappointed with this book. Um, it wasn't compelling, it wasn't interesting, it was really disappointing, and that I was, after a, a few books in a row of disappointing entries, I was considering not reading anymore. But the advanced publication, advanced publicity of this book made me think that this was going to be different. And so I, uh, I said, I will read it because I've got to see, um, you know, after you've read 10 or 15 books in a series, it's really difficult to put it down and say, I don't want to read anymore. Um, now, I did that with the David Baldacci books, however, those aren't really s- one series, they're multiple series of, you know, two or three books each, and so it was easy to say, you know, I don't really want to invest myself in this new character again. But, like with this series, with The Precedent Child, it's been, um, you know, 15 books, and so to decide that I don't want to read anymore, it's very difficult. Yeah. Um so I decided I was going to pick it up, and about 100 pages in, I was really regretting it. Um, it was not really compelling. It was moving really slowly. And the problem is, and this is a problem that I found also with um, the Sherlock Holmes books, and, and believe me, 
The Agent Pendergast books are really nothing more than a 21st century version of Sherlock Holmes, although his Dr. Watson changes depending upon the book. And yeah, I know, it's, it's, there's some mysticism to the book, uh, to, to the series. Some of the books have more mysticism than others, but it's really just a updated Sherlock Holmes and Agent Pendergast is a Sherlock Holmes. And if you'll recall from your reading of the Sherlock Holmes books, they're not really heavy on dialogue because a lot of the story is Sherlock Holmes looking around. He's on the floor, he's using his magnifying glass. I'm, I'm sure I'm mixing my my memory of the books with the um, entertainment adaptations uh, of the Sherlock Holmes canon. But a lot of it is Sherlock Holmes conducting his investigation by which he's able to deduce the, um, the, answer, to the, the answer to the mystery. And so there are chapters of this book where there's no dialogue. It's just Pendergast, you know, walking through the marshes, looking at this, looking at that. And it really makes the reading experience slow down. All that being said, the ending was really good, and it made the rest of the journey through this book a payoff, um, and, and in a way that was actually very surprising to me, because there is a cliffhanger, and you think you know what's being revealed to you at the end of the book. Basically, the way the book ends is Edge of Pendergast disappears, and back at Agent Pendergast's home in New York... His butler and his ward, um, Constance Green, are in are distraught and in utter sadness because they don't know what happened to Pendergast. And then something happens to the butler to let you know that there is somebody else inside the house and he may be responsible for what happened to Pendergast. Now, the authors won't tell us who this somebody is, but but on the last page is where this the, the, the authors give us a little bit of an insight as to who this person may be. And it says, uh, so the butler, um, Pendergast butler is Proctor, and um, Proctor is taken by surprise by this individual. And Proctor, the, the narration is, he would never forgive himself for this, especially because this man he knew was Pendergast's greatest enemy, returned, it seemed, from the dead. Now, after that, some bad things happen to Proctor within the last page, and then the book ends. And you're left wondering who this could be, because there's really only been one person in Pendergast's life that has been his his most hated enemy. Um, and yet, that character has been long gone for many, many books. Um, if I recall correctly, Pendergast threw him into a volcano or something like that. It was um, something really dramatic like that. So now, I can't help but but be excited for the next book. And that, this Crimson Shore novel, so different from A Magician's Lie, where I was waiting for the end to make the rest of the book worthwhile, Crimson Shore made that happen, and The Magician's Lie didn't. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm back on the Pendergast bandwagon until, um, until another entry in the series takes that away from me. But this one definitely left me on the edge of my seat once the book was over. Um, kind of hanging off the cliff wondering what happened to Pendergast and if 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 his greatest enemy is actually back from the dead and we talked about this before with respect to the Pendergast novels this idea that the the first few books seem to be much more heavy on the mysticism and the magic of 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 
unexplained occurrences and true suspension of disbelief. I mean, the the ward, Constance Green, is is supposed to be a hundred and something years old, and yet she looks like she's in her twenties. But it really kind of fell off over the last couple of books in that respect, as far as the this mysticism goes. But now, if the idea is that somebody who we believe has been long since dead and who Pendergast believes has long since been dead has returned from the grave, maybe we've got a little bit more mysticism in, in our in our future. And that that really is where the, the these books are at their most fun, because they're. Um, intriguing and also slightly creepy and scary and i kind of like that balance so uh definitely looking forward to the next book in that series just to see what happens next another book that uh, i read recently picked up the day it came out and pretty much devoured it within the next couple days it's a new book by robert craze called the promise and this one really took a long time to come out it's been it seems two three years since robert craze has come out with a book and this one was, I think, an attempt by Robert Craze to bring all of his successful characters together. Elvis Cole and um, Joe Pike and the most recent hero, um, <laughs> I can't remember, what's, what's his name? Scott. Sorry about that. That was embarrassing. Scott James. I remembered Scott because his, his partner is the canine, Maggie, um, which was from the most recent novel or the, the immediately preceding novel that Robert Craze wrote called Suspect, which I don't remember if we talked about it, but I didn't really like it. I thought it was okay. It was a little boring. I miss Elvis Cole. Every time Elvis Cole is off the page, I miss him and need him to be back on the page. He's really the 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 engine that makes these novels run um his 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 interrogation skills his witticisms his entertainment value is off the charts compared with any of the other characters that robert craze writes and so when robert craze or uh, when uh, um, elvis doesn't show up at all in suspect it's kind of a drag when elvis doesn't show up in some of the other books those books end up being more of a drag i truly find that the uh, books written by Robert Craze that I like best are the ones that Elvis Cole is in. This one brought the three characters together, and he did it in a really intriguing way, um, and in a way that which was quite um, inventive, creating a situation in which a private detective and a canine police officer and his canine partner would be involved in the same type of investigation. It was really good. I you can tell that that. Uh, Robert Craze has a a very strong love or 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 respect for police officers and especially the canines, as well as um, victims of terrorism and military, because he is very very kind with the way that he treats some of the characters that are um, that are military or um, or retired military, which obviously all of them are Elvis and Joe Pike, um, as well as the the somewhat tangential background character of John Stone who makes a more of a impact in the book and I heard an interview with Robert Craze that he would like to at some point um, develop a, a standalone novel for for uh, for John which I think would be interesting because I, I don't recall having had a lot of experience with his character in the past and granted we're now going over um, you know 15 20 books wherever it is so I can't remember all of them um, but the way that he wrote the book is he would tell the story from multiple, from all of the different characters' viewpoints. However, 
the only viewpoint that was told from first person was was Elvis Cole. But what you got to see was the same events told from different perspectives as they were happening. A great way to to bring the reader into the immediacy of the story, but also how certain things were all happening at the same time to give you a better perspective on on how quickly and rapidly things would take place. Um, so this was this was a, a really good one. I liked it a lot. I know Robert Craze had mentioned that he thinks that this is the best one he's written. Um, I, I really can't say. Uh, after having read as many as, as he's written, um, I can't say which one's the best, although I can certainly say that some of them have seemed to stick in my memory better than others. Um, the Last Detective, I seem to recall, was, was really good. L.A. Requiem, I seem to recall, was 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 very very good um but other than that i i can't really remember too well um but i can tell you this he comes out with a book i'm going to read it and um i really like his voice i like the way that he writes elvis cole i like the the sarcasm and the humor but also the very strong drive and determination that elvis has to do what's right and um and get the bad guy and solve the case, but also take care of the people who need to be taking care of him. Which is why I why I think that Robert Craze and Michael Connolly get along so well, and why their characters are often compared to each other. Obviously, um, Harry Bosch is a police detective, whereas Elvis Cole is a private detective, but they they both have a lot of similar characteristics as far as their the real black or white perception of the world that the bad guys need to be taken care of and good guys need to be protected. Um, or good guys, meaning the innocents, need to be protected. And um, so that brings me to The Crossing by Michael Connolly, the latest uh, Harry Bosch and Mickey Haller crossover. Um, and it's interesting that I use the word crossover because with the book called The Crossing, one of the things that I find very inventive and creative about Michael Connolly is if you, you look at the titles of the books they actually have not only just meaning to the story itself, but typically multiple meanings. And um, this book is no different. Um, we have Harry Bosch, who is basically on suspension um, because of uh, uh, infraction. Uh, he was caught breaking into a supervisor's office at the end of the previous book, The Burning Room. And so while he's on suspension and appealing it, he is hired by his famous defense attorney's uh, half-brother, Mickey Haller, to actually investigate uh, a murder on behalf of the defense. And this is something that um, Mickey or uh, um, Harry really struggles with. And you can probably understand why. Uh, Harry Bosch has spent his entire career putting away bad guys, and now he's being asked by his brother to help set a bad guy free. And that doesn't sit well with him. And so here you have Harry Bosch, who is crossing from the police to the, as he perceives, the bad guys, the defense, the the ones who are trying to set the bad guys free. And so he goes through this, this mental... Uh, evaluation of whether he can even undertake this type of a task, whether he has it in him to cross the cross the aisle and work for the defense. At the same time, he's got a a defendant who's on trial or going to be on trial for murder, and he's trying to determine where the the defendant and the victim crossed paths because that would indicate on on what grounds the, the defendant actually committed the crime. If he could determine how they crossed paths, that would then 
bring into focus how this defendant was even uh, identified as being a suspect in the murder. Again, it took me too short of a time to read, and I was done with it too quickly, and now I'm, I'm, you know, waiting the long, long, cold, dark days until the next Michael Connolly book comes out. But uh, again, there, there's something about Harry Bosch that is so uh, intriguing, but also relatable. And I think that we all would like to have the knowledge or the belief that the police is made up of the Harry Bosches when we know that um, our police is actually made up of more of the antithesis of Harry Bosch's than than Harry's themselves. Um, somebody who will will do anything, go to bat for the go to bat for the innocent in order to um, put away the bad guys. And so, it's he's really a hero for the 21st century, especially when we live in an age where um, the lines between police and the public is so blurred, and the levels of respect seems to be dwindling by the day as we hear more and more stories about police who have overstepped their bounds, who have exceeded their 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 powers and have taken advantage of, of uh, innocent people or um, overexerted their powers on people when um, that type of, of, of exchange of, of power is simply not necessary. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's why I keep coming back to the series. It's why, I, um, why I, I will always go back to the series until, look, Anything is possible. I've talked about the series where I've decided I don't want to read anymore. While I can't perceive that as of now, anything is definitely possible, and I could at some point decide I've had enough of Harry Bosch, but I kind of get the feeling that as long as Michael Connolly is still enjoying writing Harry Bosch, then it should still be enjoyable to read Harry Bosch, and my understanding is that uh, Michael Connolly has no signs of slowing, and Bosch Season 2 seems to be, I think, wrapped up, and hopefully we'll be ready to start the viewing parties again next year. So when you go on Twitter and you start following authors, authors that you like, Michael Connolly, Jonathan Kellerman, whoever they may be, other authors start to pay attention to you. And when I say other authors, I'm not talking about necessarily the New York Times bestselling authors that you see their books at Barnes and Noble, um, sitting right there at the front of the kiosk as you walk in the door. I'm talking about the authors who are um, trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to get out there. They're trying to get their voice heard. And this is a great way for them to potentially gain new readers. You know, if a, if an author is a fan of Michael Connolly and he or she looks at Michael Connolly's Twitter feed and sees that he's got eight new followers and amongst those new followers is Rob Cohen, then this new author goes to Rob Cohen and says, hey, I see you like Michael Connolly. How about you try out my book? Because I think my books are like Michael Connolly's books. And if they can sell a couple books or get some people to read their books, they're building an audience, and they're building a following, and that's how they, um, they gain readers. So somewhere, at some point over the last few years, I got contacted by an author named um, Joyce Schneider. And I didn't know anything about her, but she follows me, she sends me an email or whatever, a, a direct message, whatever it is, um, and I say, fine, you know, I follow back, because I typically will follow people back. If you want to follow me, I'll follow you back. Anyways, so now my Twitter feed is replete with authors who are selling their books. 
um, get it on Kindle. It's a Kindle single. It's 99 cents, whatever it is. And they typically will put these uh, pictures from the books or uh, quotes that they had on an Amazon review or something like that. You know, 900 five-star reviews on Amazon is a way to try and entice uh, entice me or whoever else to um, to read their book. And so Joyce Schneider had been, I guess, following me for a while, and I'd been following her, but I hadn't really paid any attention at all. Um, I think I had seen there was a book that was written, something about uh, a test tube baby or a baby that was uh, created in a laboratory or something like that, and there was some mystery to it, and it didn't really resonate, and I wasn't really paying much attention, and so I, I didn't really do any further investigation to try and read, to determine if I wanted to read the book. And yet, a few weeks ago, she had posted on her Twitter feed, so or on her Twitter page, so it showed up on my feed, something about Jack the Ripper in present day, um, present day United States. But this was Jack the Ripper with a twist, and so immediately, it kind of caught my eye. Um, this Jack the Ripper, because as we've discussed before, I'm kind of intrigued by the story, and I've read a fair amount of, of books that are Jack the Ripper books, which for the most part have all been pretty crappy. But the idea that Jack the Ripper was, was or a, a Jack, it wasn't just, it wasn't Jack the Ripper, it was a, a Jack the Ripper type um, killer who was preying on prostitutes um, similar to um, the real Jack the Ripper. However, the twist being that the, the killer was taking, removing the prostate glands from the uh, the dead women's bodies. That was enough to at least raise my level of interest and say, okay, well, maybe I'll check this out. Seems like something different. It's not just a, the run-of-the-mill take on the Jack the Ripper tale, trying to tell the exact same story differently, but in the end telling the story the exact same way. But so I was intrigued. And for whatever it was, a buck ninety nine, two ninety nine, or whatever it was, I went ahead and I bought it, and I read it. And little did I know, or little was I paying attention, that I think this is like the fifth or sixth book in the series, which started with the book about the baby test tube baby, baby born in a laboratory, whatever it was. And so I, I felt like I was a little bit at a disadvantage because I was coming into the story at the beginning. Now, oh, by the by the way, the name of the book, I have to, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the name of the book, of course is Razor Sharp um, by J.A. Schneider, although I'm not sure why she says J.A. Schneider, because if you go to her website, it tells you her name is Joyce, uh, I think. But anyways, so I started reading the book, and I really liked it. Um, I, I term it as a throwaway book, and it's really not fair, because it's not it doesn't. It's not intended to in any way diminish the amount of effort and time and skill that it took to create the book. But for whatever reason, I look at my Kindle as a way to to read kind of the, the novels that I wouldn't necessarily spend the time to go find the actual paperback or full book. Um, I don't know why. Maybe because I read some of the book on my phone while I'm in the bathroom, or it's, it's really easy to steal a couple pages here or there. Um, but, but, but I felt like this was one where I could read it, it would be a really nice diversion from anything else that I've been reading. It wasn't too serious. It wasn't too intellectual. But it was a, a story that I could be intrigued by. I could enjoy the mystery of and then kind of put it down and go back to something else. That was that was kind of the way I, I perceived it. And I really did enjoy it. Um, I did feel like I, was, I had come into the story in the middle because I didn't know who these characters were. And 
obviously the characters had all been through many books already together, so their level of connection to each other was pretty strong, and they were incredibly familiar to each other and with each other. But I don't know that I was really reading the book for the characters or the backstory or the interactions amongst the characters as much as I was reading it for the concept of the method by which the person was committing the crimes and the removal of the prostates. You'll recall that the Jack the Ripper uh, canon discusses the removal of the feminine parts, especially from the last victim. And so in this instance, you've got somebody who obviously is clearly um, uh, angered by something, whatever that may be, which is causing this person to commit the not only the murders, but also the the horrific um, dismemberments. And I don't know if dismemberment is the right word, but the, the removals of these, these organs. Um, and so it was very compelling to me to read a Jack the Ripper mystery that was not a Jack the Ripper mystery. And from that standpoint, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought the ending was good. I thought it was a little bit predictable. I'm sorry. Um, but only because the universe of characters was a little bit smaller. Although the author did do a really good job of trying to deflect and distract when at the end of the day, it ended up being the person who you probably should have thought was all along. Um, but she did do an interesting thing of of cre of tr of distracting you from this character by creating situations which which would plausibly happen to somebody who was going to be a victim as opposed to the perpetrator themselves. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I like the characters. I like the the guy and the girl um, and their their son who is this embryo um, from the first book in the series. Um, and so. From that standpoint, I would definitely recommend the book. Am I going to read the other books in the series? I don't know. Um, it was this book specifically that was was attractive to me because of the the the, the storyline, the subject matter. Um, and I think I'd have to go through each of the other books and determine whether the storylines themselves are intriguing enough for me to want to read more of. Uh, but I was very happy that I read this book, so um, I enjoyed it. And I would recommend it if it's something that you're interested in. If you're a, a Jack the Ripper fan or somebody who wants to read those types of books and is tired of the same Jack the Ripper story, then this is a very nice deviation from uh, from from that canon and from that, that style of literature. So um, definitely take it out. Razor Sharp by J.A. Schneider. Now, the book I'm reading now, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say because... Oh, wait. Speaking of embarrassed to say, another book I want to talk about, but it's one I'm definitely embarrassed to have read. It's called Do Not Disturb, and it's by A.R. Torre, T-O-R-R-E. And again, I don't know why you use a, a pseudonym if you're going to tell us what the person's name is. The real, the author's name, A.R. Torre, her name is Alessandra Torre. And I think, for as much as I can tell, she writes um, like uh, uh, erotic fiction. Um, for women, I would imagine. I, I follow her on Twitter, and she's sometimes posting um, not-safe-for-work Twitter pictures that involve men, and so I, I kind of skim through those. I don't really spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, but this book is not necessarily in the same genre. It actually is, I think, the de determining factor of what type of genre it is, is the books written by Alessandra are the erotic fiction. The books written by A.R., 
is, I think so far, the trilogy, I don't know if there's going to be a fourth book, of the character of Deanna Matthews. I think that's her name, Deanna Matthews. You know, it's interesting because she's she tells a story in first person, so it's very rare that she will um, utilize her, her, her full name. But I know her name is Deanna, although she goes by, I think it's Jessie. And this is the second book in the... Well, that's it's the second book. It's the, the, the sequel to, or the second book in the trilogy, I guess. The first book being The Girl in 6E. And that was a book that I read last year. I read it on my Kindle because, um, frankly, it was easy to, to get on my Kindle, although I'd seen it at the bookstore. And it was really kind of a cool book, but it was one of those books that you read and you say, God, I, I just don't know if I want anybody knowing that I read this book. There was a book I read last year, I think we discussed, called Tampa, uh, which was very similar, where I was enjoying the book and I was having kind of conflicting thoughts about whether I should be as um, turned on by the books as I was, and yet I really liked the book and I wanted to keep reading more of it. Um, and The Girl in 60 is really an interesting book. It was about this this girl who had basically locked herself in her apartment because she believed that if she were allowed out of into the world, she would kill people, that she was really that type of a psychopath. But the way that she sustained herself while she was in this apartment is she was a webcam girl. And so she made many, many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars as a webcam girl doing all kinds of erotic things on on um, on the webcam, on the internet for subscribers. And when I tell you that the book is descriptive of those acts, the book is descriptive of those acts. Um, and so she has this uh, online presence and she's able to monetize that and she has everything delivered to her door and she has a, a druggie down the hall who she pays to, who she doesn't pay, she lets the, I think she lets the drugs get delivered to her house. Um, but in exchange, he locks her in at night so the doors on her apartment, the door on her apartment that locks from the outside, not the inside, because she's really truly frightened that she's going to hurt somebody if she were to be let out in the, out in the open. Well, in the first book, during her interactions with some of the her clients, she learns that a little girl is in danger, that there's a, a gentleman who's going to do something very bad to a little girl. And she ends up leaving the house, leaving her apartment, and going on a road trip to take care of this very, very bad person who's going to harm this little girl. In the meantime, by the way, she ends up getting into a little bit of a relationship with the UPS delivery guy who delivers all of the supplies and things to her door. He, and this guy, Jeremy, has been doing this for quite a long time and has never seen her and yet is intrigued by her because of all the deliveries. Um, anyways, book two picks up sort of where book one left off. And this book is called Do Not Disturb. And it seems to me like it's a much more plausible concept for a book. This idea that she is a webcam girl, has turned on so many of her subscribers, you would assume that at some point one of the subscribers would try to find her. And in this instance, it turns out that it's a gentleman who has just been released from prison um, where he had been serving quite a few years for beating up a prostitute. And it turns out that this man is very sadistic, has a very, very nasty streak when it comes to women, um, pays his people to... Um, bring hookers that he beats up and rapes and leaves for dead. Um, and so this is a person who, um, because he's under house arrest, has taken to the internet to find his his sexual release. And of course, um, 
he wants to do things and and talks to our hero in a way that she does not quite like and so she um, she bans him she deletes him she ignores him she blocks him and this gentleman does not take too kindly to that and so he tracks her down and all kinds of bad shit happens from there in the meantime by the way she's dealing with the fact that she now has a boyfriend jeremy even though she still has these homicidal thoughts and she still needs to be locked in at night she still has this boyfriend and so it's kind of an interesting uh situation from her how she deals with these issues while constantly being afraid that she's going to kill him um and i don't know how much of this stuff is is legitimate if it makes sense i mean there's all kinds of people out there and people are messed up and i get that so why not um somebody like like our hero and and, and so i guess it's possible i don't know it's just not a world that i are particularly uh, spend a lot of time in but anyways, I was reading this, and at times I would be reading it at my daughter's gymnastics lessons, and I'd have to hold the book very narrow so that the words on the page weren't seen by anybody. Um, and so it was very erotic, but also very thrilling and suspenseful because you knew that this bad guy was coming for her. You knew that she was in danger. You knew Jeremy was in danger. And, um, you know, there was somewhat of a race against the clock when it came down to the, the final parts of the book. One thing that I, I thought was a little bit frustrating about the book is she repeats herself on and on and on about how afraid she is that she's going to hurt Jeremy or how she shouldn't be out in the public or how she can't control herself. And after a while, now it being two books worth, you kind of understand her situation. We get it. We know who the character is. We get that she doesn't want to go out because she's afraid she's going to kill somebody. And in fact, at one point, she almost does kill somebody who tries to mug her out in the street. But it seemed like it could have been dealt with a little bit, you know, uh, um, dealt with in a way that it didn't require constant repetition of her fears. Um, but other than that, I really enjoyed it. And I did go out and immediately bought the third book, which is out in paperback. And uh, I'll get to that very, very shortly. But I am reading a book that is frankly taking me a long time and it's still going to take me another week or two to finish. Now, we've talked before. I don't really like the event books. Okay, I don't like reading the books that everybody says you have to read. I stayed away from the Goldfinch. I've so far stayed away from all the light we cannot see. Um, I'm sure there's others out there that I've, I've avoided. Um, but I really don't. I, I, I used to. I used to read those books. You know, we talked about it before where I would make sure that I was always picking up whatever the bestseller was so I could say that I was reading it. Now I don't feel like I have to. And yet the, this, this new one, this big, huge, massive event book called City on Fire by Garth Risk. Garth Risk H. I don't remember what his last name is now. Halberg. Garth Risk Halberg. I had to pick up. Um, and it's the one that's like the, the, the publishing darling. You know, it's a $2 million advance, and it's 915 pages, and it weighs a freaking ton. And it's being called, you know, Charles Dickens in the 21st century. Well, that was enough right there for me to at least stop and check it out. And it portrays that it's about the city of New York in 1977, and seemingly unrelated residents of the city who end up converging when there's a murder. Sounds pretty good. 
sounds like something I would read. Although I've made the comment before of how can you sustain a murder, a, a, a book that is a murder mystery for more than 400 or so pages. This one is 900 and whatever. And so I picked it up and I started reading it and it was taking me a long time to get through the first couple pages. It just, the pages felt long, the pages felt dense and and it, it kind of did feel like Charles Dickens had written it. And I'm not saying it's a Charles Dickens book, obviously, and, and I'm not in any way trying to pat the author on the back and saying, congratulations, you've adopted a Charles Dickens style. But it seems to be written in a way that Charles Dickens writes, where you use a lot of big words, you take a lot longer to say what could easily be said in simpler words and simpler terms, and you interweave seemingly unrelated characters for whom you spend an inordinate amount of time on their backstory and their current story with a a mystery or a challenge or some sort of drama that surrounds them all but is really underlying the character studies and that's what this is it's character studies and you've got what i would say are for lack of better knowledge prototypical new york characters from the mid 1970s late 1970s you've got the african-american who's struggling with being gay you've got the punk rock guy who's the cbgb you've got the the young jewish kid who can't find his way and gets seduced by by the punk rock lifestyle you've got the uh the the bourgeoisie daughter of the aristocracy who's now facing being a divorcee and you've got the police detective who you know is getting no help and is trying to solve a mystery and hitting dead ends and so it's there's a lot of i would call stereotypical characters in it and i'm now at the point where i'm halfway through the book actually i'm a little bit more than halfway through the book i, I think i just passed 500 pages so i've got maybe 400 pages left and it's been about a week and a half and it's been a struggle and i really like this book but i also really hate this book um i really like it because I'm amazed at the talent and the the discipline that it took to write this book. And I was thinking the other day about how there's a way to take some of Dickens' works and really update it for the 21st century. Um, and here is somebody who's done that. I mean, it, clearly, here's somebody who's done that. Um, if you look at some of Dickens' novels, you'll see that um, the the mystery, the drama, whatever it is, is really secondary to the character studies. You talk about Bleak House, and you realize Bleak House is about um, uh, uh, an estate. Somebody's passed away, and it's a it's a probate of somebody's estate, and yet that's really such a minor part of the book as much as how all the people who were involved in this, this, this legal process have their own demons and their own backstories and their own, um, their own dramas. And so that's what this book really plays in well into that and so that's why i really really like this book i hate it because for many reasons unfortunately one i hate the fact that this guy is this this skillful at writing but i also hate that that it feels as if he's trying to show everybody how intelligent he is there are passages that are descriptions of people talking and or or the characters in their writings. And I just sit here wondering how anybody could ever 
be intelligent to write stuff like that, let alone a 17-year-old or, you know, a punk rock guy who is now a, a you know, a, um, a revolutionary. And so I'm, I'm constantly wondering if people really talk this way. Is this a way for the author to show how intelligent he is while making me feel unintelligent? And that's, by the way, why I didn't like The Secret History by Donna Tartt. We talked about it. It seemed to me as it was just an exercise in a demonstration of intelligence as opposed to trying to tell a compelling story. And there are aspects of this book, City on Fire, that are compelling. It just because it's 900-something pages, you can't just have the mystery. You have to fill the book with character study, with characters, and with situations. And a lot of it, I'm sure, is drawn from real events, whether it's, um, you know, real law, uh, um, real, uh, real uh, uh, tellings of the punk rock lifestyle, or real accounts of revolutionaries who are trying to take over the city, trying to basically demonstrate that this city of New York in 1977 was truly a city on fire that was seemingly torn apart from all different directions, whether it was the criminal direction of you know, a murder that can't be solved, or business coming in and taking over, for, taking over the little guy, or um, you know, the, the, the outcast punk rock kids who feel as if they don't have a place and are trying to revolutionize um, society and, and express themselves politically and revolutionarily or counter-revolutionary, as well as, you know, all kinds of other uh, minor sub, subtexts uh, and minor characters that seem to figure in here. And so I've at many times thought about putting the book down, and yet I just, I feel like I can't, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've gone through the massive tomes of Charles Dickens and made it out alive and with a great respect for Charles Dickens that I really want to finish this one and make it out with, you know, make it out with my sanity and, 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 and come to a conclusion that this is a book to be respected and appreciated. And there are, there are points in the book where I've definitely felt that. There are also points in the book where I felt my eyes glazing over saying, just get to something that's a little bit more interesting. And so I feel in that respect, it is a little bit over overwritten. It, like every sentence is so carefully crafted that you can't say anything simple. It requires more complexity. And so it does make the reading experience a little bit more challenging. It makes the reading experience a little bit more lengthy. Um, but I, I read a review of the book, and it said the same thing. It said, how can you really criticize a book for all these things when it's all these things? How can you criticize a book for being so intelligently written when it is so intelligently written? And yes, it is long. And yes, it could be shorter. But I think that just appreciation for the talent and for the discipline and for the time it took to create every single word of this book, knowing that every single word of this book is specifically placed where it is for a reason, is enough to generate a significant amount of appreciation and respect for the author. And um, I got 400 pages left, so I'm more than halfway. Might as well finish it, right? So we'll probably talk about whether the book lived up to the rest of the expectations in the next uh, the next episode. And uh, other than that, I, I kind of doubt that 
I'll get back to you before Christmas and New Year's, although I always have the grandest of expectations and hopes that I will. But uh, if I don't, then please have a very happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever holiday you may you may celebrate. Have a tremendous New Year's, and here's to a lot of fun reading in 2016, and thank you again for letting me lie on your couch. I'd love to hear from you. Find me on Book Therapy 13 is my Twitter, or booktherapy13 at gmail.com. This is Rob Cohen saying good night and have a good time reading.